Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, presents with persistent symptoms of inattention, hyperactivity and impulsivity, causing impairment in multiple settings. It is a disorder that attracts considerable debate and controversy. The first part of this podcast focused on the diagnosis of ADHD, and now we'll discuss the treatment options. I'm Emma Parrish, Editorial Registrar at the BMJ and a paediatric trainee, and I'm joined by two of the authors of the review. Mina Fazel. Hi, Mina. Hello. And Ninka Verkal. Hi, Ninka. Hello. And again, we have Rachel joining us to give a parent's perspective. Hi, Rachel. Hello. So the review discusses in some detail the options of treatment, drug, dietary, for example. But Ninka, why don't you start by talking us through some of the non-drug options first? So you can get mild to severe ADHD, and I think mild to moderate In the UK, the guidelines are that you are referred for parenting courses. I mean, with a caveat that there are very few parenting courses around for ADHD. Um, And also looking at sort of behavioural interventions in the classroom, how you can support a child in that way. Only for severe ADHD in the UK, you're allowed to prescribe medication alongside psychosocial interventions. But again, it's difficult saying that people need psychosocial interventions when you think about the sort of availability of these. And so thinking about the, the evidence base for, for those treatments, and we've, we've mentioned a little bit some of the controversies and difficulties in accessing some of them, yeah. what, what is your feeling? Are, are there gaps in that evidence base or are there some that we know um, are effective and, and have an impact on children and families? Okay, so I'd like to split it up into sort of non-drug interventions and drug interventions or pharmacological interventions. So if you look at the non-drug treatments, that would be parent training, social skills training, cognitive training and cognitive behavioural therapy, classroom interventions and dietary interventions. And if I could just address them one by one. So parent training, I think we also have to be very careful because as Rachel said, Guilt is around everywhere when you have a child of ADHD and blame. and So we really have to be very clear when we're recommending this. It's not anything to do with parenting, but these children need special, more intense parenting. So I think that's important to um, highlight. So what does this parent training... Actually, the evidence comes from conduct disorders. The evidence based in ADHD is actually not that good. So if you look at pure... The evidence for parenting on ADHD symptoms is not that good. But these it probably helps children with their self-esteem, the parent-child relationship, their peer interactions. So I do think it is a good recommendation to be. And also by the time they come to us, the parent-child relationship is often strained. So a lot of parenting is actually, instead of telling a child what not to do, it focuses a lot actually on making the parent-child relationship very positive, making wanted behaviours more explicit, having more clear rules, as Rachel was saying also at school, and um, actually punishment and timeout is very just used in very, uh, my, not very often, and actually ignoring unwanted behaviour. Then if we look at social skills training, there's no evidence, actually, a recent uh, Cochrane review showed no evidence against or for this type of training and that it had any effect. 
And I think there was even one trial that showed a negative effect of social skills training, just because if you think about it, a group of children with ADHD, the child who's worst behaved might get the most attention and maybe you get a sort of learned response. Then cognitive training uh, trains attention and working memory. And this is found to be effective when you use non-blinded assessors, so that often the parents, if you ask them, do you think things are better, they'll say yes. But if you use people who are blind to the intervention, no actual uh, effect is found. Uh, Cognitive behavioural therapy, so there was a systematic review And in children, I think we can say it's not very effective. I mean, cognitive behavioural therapy asks a lot of restraint, really, and thought. And But it is, there was a subsequent trial in 2012 that showed that with adolescents on medication, cognitive behavioural therapy might actually help with the comorbidities. So you think about depression or anxiety. Then classroom interventions, against a very mixed bag, but luckily we have a really good systematic review which came out earlier this year in March by Moore and colleagues. And um, it actually shows very different effect sizes for the different interventions. And their idea that this range of effect size is actually attributed to contextual factors. So how much do teachers know about ADHD? Are they seeing it as something that's caused by bad parenting, so it's very much a social phenomenon, or something highly biological and just within the child. So they mentioned a few effective strategies, which I'd also like to mention, like having the child sit near the teacher, um, having very few distractions, and they emphasise having this as class-wide intervention, so you're not singling out the child, because I think stigma has has also correlation with poorer outcomes. They mentioned a daily report card also helps with communication with between the teacher and the parent. And interestingly, there was a paper that came out this year showing that um, actually children physically moving in the class help them concentrate. So if you think about treatments, medication treatment, you're giving stimulants. So maybe these children are self-stimulating by sitting on an exercise ball on this case they were actually able to concentrate better so often these children are fiddling in the class or rocking on their chair and told to sit still but we might have to change our approach to that and actually encourage this sort of a behavior this example plays to the controversies of it because actually you know if the education system was slightly different or more attuned to these needs or in certain places or certain types of education might be better suited and so the reality is we don't know but we're stuck in a system of education right now so we need to work out how to help these children right now as well as address the broader issues that actually isn't down to one group of people it's you know discussions take place between education health families as well what have you found that's been really helpful for you as a parent and for your son potentially to use i think from a family point of view the parenting point of view at home um the two things that are absolutely essential not always easy to do but one is as a parent to remain completely calm in the face of quite difficult defiant behavior Um, so ignore when necessary and do not raise your voice do not raise the emotional temperature of the situation because it spirals out of control very quickly Um, so that's down to individual parenting it's obviously harder for a sibling to do that because they can be wound up um, and the other thing is back to raising 
in his case particularly his self-esteem so frequent praise given responsibility given tasks and told as often as possible how well he has done which is very difficult when you have other children in the family because he's being praised perhaps more quickly and the other children who are all behaving perfectly well will be saying, well, we behave well, but we don't get all this praise. So it's a difficult balance, but calmness and praise have worked very well in his case. Ninka, the review mentions there's some evidence regarding the link between diet and some symptoms. Can you tell us about those? Actually, free fatty acids have been shown in systematic reviews to have an effect size of 0.3, which is the same actually as antidepressants. So I do think we can start, I mean, the evidence is not very strong yet, but I think we can start to recommend these. Um, Also, um, if there's a history of certain foods worsening behaviour, you can think of doing a food diary and then exclusion diets together with a dietitian. With my son, we have not altered his diet particularly. He happens to eat very healthily, we try and reduce sweets and fizzy drinks. But the most crucial thing, he is very thin, already quite small. And yes, I give him a good breakfast so that he has his medication with food. But equally, the importance of keeping him fed all day is absolutely crucial to keeping him calm. And if I could make sure that he was fed all day, which is difficult in the school environment, um, again, I think it would reduce the need for medication because I think these children are so operating at such a high level of activity that they use up food resources five times or whatever as fast as other children. Mm -hmm. Now it might be good to talk about the the drug treatments that are available and because people are familiar with the drug treatments often. And is there a good evidence base for those or are there times where they're best used or better avoided? When you ask about the evidence base, I do think, you know, what... I think was a surprise to us when we yeah. started the review as well that given the prevalence of this disorder um, and and how many millions of children around the world are yeah. treated with it for it on drugs for example the evidence base is actually not what you know not as strong as you would hope mm-hmm. uh, but actually that isn't unique to ADHD you know for throughout child mental health the evidence base is unfortunately incredibly poor. So the evidence that we're presenting is, I think, just the beginning of us learning what are the best interventions for this group, be they non-drug interventions or drug-related interventions. And that the recommendations that are coming out are still based on a very poor overall evidence base. Okay, so just to describe the two types of medication there are. We've got psychostimulants which increase available central dopamine and noradrenaline in the brain and examples of those are dexamphetamine and methylphenidate and then you have the noradrenergic reuptake inhibitors. An example of this is atomoxetin. Now the evidence base um, for short term use this medication is highly effective but we have to keep in mind that these studies to be included in this systematic review only had to be giving medication for three weeks or longer. So the longer-term outcome data are much more difficult to interpret, I would say. So there's a really good study, the multimodal treatment study of children with ADHD. Interestingly, in the first 14 months, medication was more effective and actually the behavioural interventions didn't seem to add a lot. 
Then eight years later, they, after 14 months, this becomes a naturalistic study. And they look back eight years later, so which children have done better in this arm? And they can't actually tell which children have received which intervention. The only thing that really predicted outcome was socioeconomic advantage from the start and better behavioural, better behaviour at the beginning. So what is the current recommendation on kind of duration of treatment or how long you should wait before you decide if you if you do decide to start medication you would change drug or or stop that medication i think if you have severe adhd so some of the children who come to us who are aggressive can't function in a classroom environment um uh, parents can't take them on a play date um parents are constant can't take them shopping i mean then i think there is an argument for maybe giving it all the time and um, I think drug holidays are less recommended, but even the research about that is a bit patchy, whether we should and shouldn't. I think if you have more attentional problems, or then you can think of giving it at more challenging times when school becomes more intense. Perfect, thank you. And yeah, Rachel, I'd just like to talk to you about this really, and what if you can tell us a bit about your experiences and, and your son's experiences of of treatment and what's been offered to you as a family and to to your son and what you think, what your feelings were around that time? Well, my son's been on medication. He happens to be on something called Equisim, still a relatively low dose, for about four or five months. So we're not very far into it. And it's quite hard to know from a family point of view exactly what effect it has because we've chosen the dose that operates while he's in school hours and it has more or less washed out by the time he gets home and as every parent will know the tea time homework slot is always fairly fraught even with children without any um, attention issues but I would I think it has helped him concentrate at school and has calmed his relations with other children Academically, he's always done all right. He's quite smart, and on the subjects he loves, he's never had a problem. So for me, it's been the most important thing is to calm his relationships with his peer group so that he is accepted in, into that. And I think for that reason, I would feel that drug holidays may actually be quite a good idea for him if he's off doing something he wants. He would be the happiest boy in the world if he could spend his life on camps making fires doing all sorts of practical things he wouldn't need a single medical intervention Um, and I would agree that probably the exam issue is not the one time that you up it just his day-to-day interactions at school I think he needs it it's also absolutely crucial that all the other psychosocial interventions are made um, and he has started some therapy I'm involved in that. His younger sister will be, because um, as any family who has one child with ADHD knows, it affects sibling relationships very strongly, particularly if one or other of the children is very young. Um, So I think it's broadly been positive, but I would worry if it had to become a permanent long-term regime. Has he had any problems with the medication, or has it been relatively smooth? It's been smoother than I thought, so that's good in one sense. But um, he's he's very articulate about how he feels about these things. And the most obvious 
side effect has been nausea um, and it's it was worse at the beginning and then each time he went up a dose um, it was bad again when he hit the 30 milligrams a day that he's on now the first week of that change he definitely felt physically sick for probably a couple of hours in the morning and I did notice a, an emotional consequence once we'd gone up to this dose that he was definitely more grumpy at school they said he was more subdued and he's not a subdued child obviously because he, he is a, um, he's a very lively personality as well as having ADHD and I think he actually he couldn't put it quite into words but I think he felt quite depressed because he knew he wasn't himself that thankfully seems to have resolved and um, he has not mentioned feeling sick and also thankfully he has not had his sleep patterns disrupted he is still sleeping very well um, but obviously if he had to go up to a higher dose then that would concern me because he's a child who needs a lot of sleep and Ninka, is there any other side effects that we should be aware of when potentially children start on these medications or um, anything that we need to do before starting medications as, as clinicians or health professionals looking after these children to be aware of? The, the common side effects are headaches, feeling slightly irritable, the, the nausea. But these tend to go away in a couple of days, as Rachel's also described. Sleep is a mixed bag. Some children actually need medication to be able to settle to sleep and other parents will actually describe children not being able to sleep many hours after having their last dose. Um, so, And then there, there's an important thing we always monitor for, which is the effect it has on blood pressure. So in most children, the effect on blood pressure is very uh, mild, but actually in a small percentage, about 5 to 10%, they can actually get a very high blood pressure, which is more, which is over the 95th centile. So we really need to, especially when we're initiating and then titrating up, need to control for this. Um, also, children with um, congenital heart defects or family history of sudden death really need to be well monitored and have a cardiologist's opinion before they start on medication. There's another so. Uh, paired with the nausea, uh, a lot of children describe uh, loss of appetite. So there's also weight loss with this medication. So we always check the weight before children start. We advise that children have a good breakfast before they have their first dose and more calorific snacks throughout the day. Um, the effect on growth. So the MTA study showed there was a reduction in growth of one centimetre per year for the first three years. After that, we're not clear what happens to growth and, and when we continue to use medication. And we're also not sure what medication does to adult height. And how have you found that balance of that sharing of the decision to start treatment with your son, yourself and the, and the health professionals? How did you find that process? I think once you've been presented with the diagnosis, the proper assessment has been made and a recommendation has been given by the doctor that you should trial this medication, um, it's quite an uncomfortable position to be in because you've gone to ask for the diagnosis and then if you're told it's worth trialling, you don't really have an option, but you feel concerned that there might be uh, other side effects. Um, 
I, the doctor who did the assessment in our case, I did trust his judgment and the, I think the technical term is the titration has been, um, as Nika said, you go up f- f- relatively quickly, but we haven't gone up very far and we're holding on that. So it's not a terribly high dose. So I have broadly been comfortable with it. I do also believe in the non-medical side of things, the therapeutic side, but I have some reservations that therapy for a 10-year-old, particularly in my case, he's he's pretty smart about knowing what he should say and what, and what he wants out of a therapeutic session. So I think all the psychological s- support for the medical intervention, I believe it to be really important, but I also... I've experienced so far that in practice it's really complicated and how you ever measure the outcome of it I don't know because there's so much else going on and anyone can play therapy up to a point and certainly a smart 10 year old boy can So That's really interesting what you've said so it's more about understanding of the condition and what do you feel um, any of, of you may step in at this about what would be the next step in kind of managing to do that to to make a better understanding of the condition to other people? Clinical review. (laughs) (laughs) You know, as with, you know, a lot of mental illness, stigma is always a big problem. So just understanding a bit more about the causes, that, you know, there are a range of causes, some of which are genetic and what we call heritable, others are more environmental. You know, it's a complex disorder. Um, And there are good treatments available. There's improved understanding we need to know more through research. There are a lot of gaps still, but actually, this is an, you know a lot of children are affected by this. A lot of families are also affected, and a, a better kind of appreciation of that. Parents shouldn't feel embarrassed that they have a child who's taking medication. You know, s- schools should be more facilitative in in having those discussions, in in facilitating medication being taken if needed at school. Rachel, to wrap up, as a parent who has first-hand experience of this, have you got any advice for other parents out there who either have had or suspect a diagnosis of ADHD in one of their children? I think the first thing is, has been said already, is to stop thinking you can do it all by yourself as a parent and go and seek professional help. You feel more supported once you have found the right help. Um, so just stop feeling guilty about it of course remain concerned and monitor the effects of medication and also probably don't overcomplicate it there are often very simple things that you can do behaviorally that make a huge difference Um, and don't beat yourself up about it just do your best and uh, if there are other children involved in, in your family as well I think it I would strongly recommend that as far as possible you always try and sh- show them that it the child with ADHD it's not their fault they are not bad they just need a, a slightly more more tolerant different level which is a very hard thing to teach any child for their sibling relationships but I think if you can do that it pays huge dividends that's a nice overview of some of the ways in which ADHD can be treated Thanks to Mina Fazel, Nenka Verkel and Rachel. And that clinical review is now available on the bmj.com. 
If you want to find out more about the diagnosis of the condition, listen to part one of this podcast where my colleague Navjoit Ladder will be discussing how ADHD manifests and how a formal diagnosis is made.